Well, good morning, Faith Fellowship. Oh, we try that again. Good morning, Faith Fellowship. All right, there we go. I have been instructed to wish someone a happy birthday. Ava is turning 13. Happy birthday, Ava, wherever you are hiding. <laughs> you, you can thank Aaliyah for that. All right. Well, before we get going this morning, I wanted to update you on our search for a new worship director. Hannah, as you know, left suddenly back in July, and since that time we have been searching and waiting on God to send us someone with the right spirit and passion to take on this important role. And during that time, Jessica has stepped in to fill the void. In fact, it's always been Jessica who has stepped in to fill the void over years. I'm not talking months, over years. When someone was sick, who would we call? Jessica. She'd be there in a heartbeat. When someone's on vacation, who fills in? Jessica. Exactly. Even when her arm was broken, somehow she was managing to fill in. And what we have discovered is that sometimes it's easy to miss the answer that's right in front of you when it's, it's just standing right there staring, in you, staring you in the face. And this whole time, Jessica has been this person who has been willing to serve wherever God could use her with a heart and passion that is undeniable for worship. In fact, she's done more to bring new people into the ministry than our past worship leaders have. In fact, she just got her husband to sing harmony. I mean, that was amazing. Yes. He's going to be on every week. He and Ben and the, man, the whole family all have this stuff come, come in here. That's just the way it is. So... Please welcome her. When you see her, she'll be back up on stage at the end of the service as our new worship director. Amen. <laughs> Christmas is a time of stories. And one of my favorite Christmas stories is about an old shoe cobbler who dreamed that Jesus would come visit him on Christmas Eve. The dream was so real that he was convinced it would come true. This... I have experience with. In elementary school, I had a dream about a teacher who made fun of me and how she had me stand up in front of the class and had the whole class laugh at me and make fun of me too. It was so real that I convinced my father it was real. And let me tell you, that took some effort. We went down to the school so he could confront the teacher. He was midway through chewing her out when I tugged on his sleeve and I said, Dad. I had to tug a couple times because he was really getting worked up. I said, Dad, Dad. And he said, what, son? And I said, I think it was a dream. <laughs> it was a quiet ride home, let me tell you. He had a lot of apologizing to do before we left the school. So I have experience with this. Back to the story of the cobbler. The next morning, he got up, and he cut green boughs to decorate his little cobbler shop. Before the workday began, he was all ready for Jesus to come and visit. In fact, he just sat down to wait for him. The hours passed, and Jesus didn't come. However, an old man came. He shuffled inside for a moment to get warm from the cold outside on a winter's day. And as the cobbler talked with him, he noticed that the holes were in the old man's shoes. So he reached up on the shelf and he picked a brand new pair of shoes. The cobbler made sure that they fit and that his socks were dry and he sent him on his way. Then an elderly woman showed up. 
And it was obvious that the woman hadn't eaten a decent meal in days. And so the cobbler prepared for her a meal from his own pail. And after she finished her tea and bread, she thanked the cobbler, Merry Christmas and God bless you, laddie, and headed out into the chill. By now it was late in the afternoon, and the cobbler sat down to wait for Jesus. But Jesus still didn't come. The silence of the afternoon was broken when he heard a little boy crying out on his front stoop. And he went out to talk with the boy, only to discover that the boy had become separated from his parents and had been lost and didn't know how to get home. So the cobbler put on his coat, closed up his shop, took the boy by the hand, and led him home. When he came back to his shop later on, it was already dark and the streets were emptied of people. The cobbler realized that his dream was just a dream and that he that there would be no Jesus. In a moment of despair, he lifted up his voice and said, "Oh Lord, why didn't you come?" A tear rolled down his cheek as he seemed to hear a voice speaking to his heart. "Oh cobbler, lift up your heart. I kept my word. Three times I knocked at your friendly door." I was the man with the bruised feet. I was the woman who you gave to eat. I was the boy on the homeless street. You see, Jesus had come, but the cobbler didn't realize it. So it was with the first Christmas as well. The Son of God entered the world, and there was a no-vacancy sign on the door of Bethlehem's Motel 6. The apostle John remarked, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's almost too tragic. The creator of the universe comes into our space-time continuum, and it was witnessed by more animals than it was humans. Had the innkeeper known Mary was about to give birth to his Redeemer, he probably would have given her the, the penthouse suite, if there is such a thing, in a Motel 6. Just as the Christ child was overlooked, we are often guilty of the same ignorance this time of year. Do we see opportunities to minister to others that the world passes aside? Jesus reminds us, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let's keep our hearts, let's keep our doors and our wallets open this Christmas really throughout the year, and you may just be surprised who the Lord might send your way. Let's pray, but before we do, I want to remind you, if you missed a message, any message of the year, you can always go to ffcsermon or sermons.org, where you can listen online. Again, you can download, you can sign up for a podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch previous messages on YouTube or Facebook. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you that you are a God who gives, that you give lavishly, and that you lavish that love on us, and that you did not spare even your own son. We thank you for sending him. We rejoice in the love that we celebrate this morning, in your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This Christmas, I want to look at the most famous verse in the Bible. It's not the longest verse. That would be Esther 8-9, I believe. It's not the shortest verse. That would be, who knows the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, right? John eleven thirty five. 35. Whenever they said you have to memorize a verse as a kid to get something, Jesus wept was it. Two words and you're done. Jesus wept. 
But it is the most famous verse, and some might argue the greatest verse in the Bible. Billions of people over history have memorized this verse. And of course, that would be John 3.16. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. It pops up all over the place. Maybe you've seen this at football games. It ends up in the end zone practically every score. Or on someone's face, maybe you've seen pictures that say, turn or burn, sanctify, or French fry. You're going to fry and die. Read John 3.16. It's true. Not very winsome, but it's true. It's on the bottom of every In-N-Out burger cup. Not a lot of those around here. More of a West Coast thing, I think. But it's on the bottom of every cup. John 3.16 explains the reason for Christmas. John 3.16 explains the way to get to heaven. John 3.16 explains the entire Bible in one sentence. Let's read it together this morning. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Your translation may say only begotten instead of one and only. So here's an apologetic moment for you. Some teachers have latched on to that phrase, only begotten, to try and prove that Jesus isn't God. That Jesus isn't equal in essence to God as the second person of the Trinity. They say that word begotten means that Jesus had to have been created in time. Because you can only be begotten if you're born inside of time. Therefore, he's not equal to God. What that fails to note is that begotten is an old English translation of a Greek word, and a really old one at that, that word manganese. As such, we have to look at the original meaning of the Greek word rather than put our English meaning back into the text. So what does manganese mean? Well, it has two primary definitions. The first definition is pertaining to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship. This is the meaning in Hebrews eleven seventeen when the writer refers to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Abraham had other sons, but Isaac was the only one born by Sarah and the only one of the covenant. Therefore, it's the uniqueness of Isaac among the other sons that allows for the use of this Greek word in that context. The second definition is pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class, unique in kind. This is the meaning that is implied in John 3.16. John was primarily concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore equal with God. And he uses manganese to highlight Jesus as uniquely God's Son, sharing the same divine nature as God, as opposed to believers like you and I who are God's sons and daughters by adoption. Jesus is God's one and only Son. So if you're only going to get one verse out of the entire Bible, this is the verse to get. Because this one is the gospel, the good news in a nutshell. It's the greatest verse some have argued in all of the Bible. And I want to look at it phrase by phrase this morning, where we will see the greatest love, the greatest sacrifice, the greatest offer, and the greatest gift ever made. So let's begin. The whole reason we give gifts at Christmas is because God so loved the world that he gave. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. That little word so isn't a big word, but in the original Greek, it's a word uh, of 
an adverb rather of intensity, meaning a whole, whole lot. He so, so loved the world. Now, if you're a single woman and a guy comes up to you and says, I love you, you might blow him off. But if he said, I've fallen for you and I can't get up, you might think he needs a life alert. I'm not really sure. But he may get your attention. Or if he said, oh, girl, you put the fly in superfly, you might think he needed to come out of the 70s and maybe into a little more modern time. Or, or maybe you're the, the crayons to my coloring book. Or I try to think of you all the time, and when I'm not thinking of you, I think of ways that I can be thinking of you. And when I'm not thinking of ways that I can be thinking of you, I get confused and I have to start all over again. He says, I so love you. And it may put a little more attention on it for you. It's an adverb of intensity. God's love for you is intense. It is extravagant. It is lavish. No one will ever love you as much as God does. No woman will ever love you as much. No man will ever love you as much as God does. Let me just show you a couple verses out of the Bible. There are hundreds of verses on the love of God. Let me show you a couple about how much God loves you. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, Long ago, even before he made the world, God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided then to make us, his, uh, make us holy in his eyes without a single fault. We who stand before him covered with his love. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending Jesus Christ to die for us. And he did this because he wanted to. It says that before God even made the universe, he already had you in mind. And he made you to love you. It's not hard to understand if you're a parent. We're in love with our children before they are even born from the moment we know that they are there. And God loved you even before he created you. You were in his mind. He has always loved you. Psalm 145, 9 says, God is good to one and all. Everything he does is soaked through with grace. That's the way the message puts that verse. I love, I love that context. Soaked through with grace. His good extends to everyone, and everything he does is soaked through with his grace. Every year we go to the Greek festival and we get homemade fresh baklava from the little old Greek ladies. you got to look for the really oldest ones. You'll want to buy theirs. And you can tell it's fresh because the juices of honey and, and the flavor soaked through every layer of phyllo dough. It's like 30 layers of dough. It runs down your hands as you eat it. Soaked through with his grace. Everything in life is soaked through with God's grace. Maybe you take that for granted. Maybe you've never even thanked God for it, for the air that we breathe, for the water that we drink, for the sunshine that we feel, the food we eat. All of these things are soaked through with God's grace. We couldn't take our next breath if God had not ordained that to be because he loves us. God's love for you is eternal, and God's love for you is literally everywhere. But most important, it is unconditional. That's different than human love. Human love wears out sometimes, doesn't it? We know that. Fractured families are everywhere. Human love can wear out, but God's love never wears out. There is no condition where God will stop loving you. That's called unconditional love. Paul says in Romans 8, 
He says, for I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels won't and all the power of hell itself cannot keep God's love away. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow or where we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing will able, ever be able to separate us from the love of God demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ when he died for us. Nothing can separate you from God's love. You can't break that bond. You can't make God stop loving you. Because God's love isn't based on what you are. It's based on who he is. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he has done. It's not based on your performance. God isn't waiting for you to be nice and to do the right things to love you. Because love is based on who he is. He loves you on your bad days. He loves you on your good days. He loves you when you feel it. He loves you when you don't. In fact, before God even created you, he knew that today, in 2021, you would be here this morning. And God's love, if you tap into it, is sufficient to handle any of the problems of life. It's multidimensional. The Bible says in Ephesians, may you be able to feel and understand how long how wide, how deep, and how high God's love really is and experience this love for yourselves. This is my prayer for you this Christmas, that you would know God so loved you and know how deep is God's love. The second part of, of John 3.16 tells us about the greatest sacrifice. For God has so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God so loved that he gave. Love and giving go together. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to come to earth to die for us. You've heard the expression, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Well, that is exactly what God did. He said, I'm going to go myself and solve this sin problem on earth. Because something in the story of mankind went wrong. God wanted to partner and rule his good world together with you and I. But something went wrong. Not because there was something wrong with the way God set up the plan, but because something went wrong inside of human beings. There was and is this urge to not trust God's definition of good and evil and to seize autonomy and independence and to define evil and good for ourselves as we see it. And here's what's crucially important. The effect of hell and evil and sin can be seen in the results of our decisions to seize autonomy from God. How do I know that? That there's a present-day effect of hell right here? Well, Jesus' brother wrote a letter. It's in your Bible. It's called the letter or the book of James. Not a very original title, but it's an interesting letter. And Jesus' brother, as he hung out with Jesus, is someone I'm bound to trust when he's representing the teachings of Jesus. And in his letter in chapter 3, he talks about the power of the tongue and how the human tongue has power to, to bless and to praise God, the Creator. But at the same time, this same human tongue has the ability to gossip about people, to tear down their character, to speak ill and poorly of them. And James is dumbfounded when he sees this behavior. He says, humans do this with their tongues. He says their tongues are lit on hell, a lit on fire by hell. What are the implications of that? 
the implications are that hell isn't just something to worry about at the end of the game. Hell is a reality that is present now. It's a reality that humans unleash, unleash on each other and on God's good world to ruin and destroy relationships and to destroy people. And God hates hell. And the story of the Bible is all about God wanting to get the hell out of his world and to get the hell out of you. When else in church can you say that? Are you following me? That's the story of the Bible. God hates hell because hell is about unleashing selfishness and evil and the breakdown and and the degrading of of these image-bearing humans that we are. We bear his image. That's the effect of hell on who we are. This 89-year-old woman was arrested for shoplifting. 89 years old. When she went before the judge in Cincinnati, he asked her, What did you steal? She replied, a can of peaches. The judge asked her why she had stolen a can of peaches. And she replied that she was hungry. The judge asked her how many peaches were in the can. She replied, six. The judge said, then I will give you six days in jail. Before the judge could actually pronounce the punishment, the woman's husband spoke up and asked the judge if he could say something on her behalf. Thinking he would offer to take her place, the judge asked, what is it? And the husband said, she also stole a can of peas. (laughs) You see, that's the effect of hell. And you can see it unfold in Genesis chapter 3 through 11. It starts with a fateful turn away from God back in the garden. And it progresses to the murder of of Abel by his brother Cain and to Noah's day and its wickedness. And on and on and on. That's what's happening. It's humans unleashing hell on earth because of our decision for autonomy from God. God hates it because his love for his world uh, and his love for human beings who are made in his image. That's the whole story of what the Bible is. And Jesus, later, when he begins his ministry, announces the good news. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel means. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. And he comes to invade earth and to confront evil. Jesus, uh, just read through the, the gospel of Mark and you see it. What you'll see is that Jesus is confronting evil and its disastrous effects on humans wherever he goes. It takes the form of him casting out demons, of, of confronting the breakdown of human relationships, of healing the sick. Jesus hates hell and he hates what hell does to human beings. And he hates the path that it leads us down. And you and I are not capable of fixing this problem. Sure, we can dress it up a bit here and there, but we are simply incapable of fixing the root cause of the problem that Jesus wants to get the hell out of this world and out of you and I. That's the good news, and it's good news, but it's a double-edged sword because it's sort of like I want God to get the evil out of this world, but I wanted to do it without having to get rid of me. Right? That's the hard truth of it. He has met the enemy, and it is me. That's not the greatest news to hear, but at the same time, it depends on who's saying it to you. If someone who is intent on mowing you down with an M16 thinks you're the enemy, that's bad news. But if a surgeon comes, right? If a surgeon comes with a knife and he needs to open you up, and he needs to take out some life-threatening illness that's poisoning your body, that's good news. It's going to be painful, 
but it's good news. So that's the story of the Bible. Jesus is more serious about this than we are. And how does Jesus, the great physician, come to heal us and to get hell out of us? Go finish reading the Gospel of Mark. You'll discover that Jesus lives this hell-free existence. He goes on to show us what human life is meant to be, as God designed it to be, how we are meant to uh, be modeled like him, made in his image, but we perpetually fall. He lives a life that gives and only loves and is other centers. And in fact, it is so offensive It is so scandalous and so repulsive to those around Jesus who he calls out for their religious hypocrisy, for their pride, for their anger and rage, that they killed him. The paradox of the gospel is that God so loved this world and is committed to his broken world, ruined by hell and what hell has done to it, that he actually allows hell to overwhelm him and destroy him. He allows hell to exhaust its power on him. We call that the moment of the cross. It's the paradoxical death and resurrection of Jesus and the death and resurrection of our world in Jesus. Wait a minute, this is Advent, Jim. Why are we talking about resurrection? That's Easter time. You're a little early. Well, you're right. But Christmas is only part of the story. The story has an ending. And the reason there is Christmas is so that Jesus can be murdered, so that he can be sacrificed For you and me. The whole train wreck of human history and its consequences of evil and sin exhaust its power in Jesus' death. Because this God is so in love with you and I and his world. And with the compromised, fractured, image-bearing beings that we are. That he will not let hell have the last word. And the resurrection of Jesus is this moment of new life. It is a moment that speaks of God's love and his eternal commitment to our good world. And the resurrection of Jesus represents this offer, this opportunity of life in the present and on into the future. He calls us to repent and believe the good news. There is hope for which Jesus was born. This is the hope for which Jesus was born and the love that we celebrate this Advent morning. So if that's the case, how do I get in on this good deal? How do I get in on this love that you're talking about, this hope? Well, it's in here. The greatest offer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Of course, we've been getting all kinds of Christmas offers all year long. The big screen store has an offer for an 82-inch TV And they throw in a 65-inch TV with it. Are you listening, hon? 85. How can you not accept this offer? (laughs) Think of how much we could save. Of course, when I realize how much I have to spend to get the savings, I realize I can't afford the savings. Well, how about the Ginsu 2000? Oh, it slices, it dices, it goes through cans and tomatoes. But wait. Order now, and we'll send you a second knife for free. Just pay a separate fee. (laughs) Wait, I thought it was free. On the other hand, God has an offer for you this Christmas. It's a Christmas offer that you cannot afford to not accept. And there's no separate fee. It's the offer to save you. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Notice a couple of things about this. 
First, who is this offer for? Well, it says whoever. That means anybody. Titus says in his letter, the free gift of eternal salvation is offered to everyone. Everyone. There's no mention of religion here. It doesn't say this is only offered to this religious group or, or that religious group, to this nationality or that nationality. It says it is offered to everyone. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. You may be Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, Buddhist, Baptist, Hindu. doesn't matter. God died for you because he loves you. The free gift of eternal salvation is offered to everyone. It doesn't matter at all what religious background is because it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It makes no difference who you are, where you're from. If you want God and you are ready to do what he says, the door is open. It's all about whoever believes in him shall not perish. It says it's all about what I've done for you, not what you did for me. It's amazing grace for every race. Amen? Amazing grace for every race. Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. How do I accept this offer? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Paul tells us in Romans, Romans 10 and 9. It's a kid's song that goes, it's a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace divine. Romans 10 and 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from death, then you will be saved. But there's a problem with that verse. We don't understand the meaning of the word Lord because we're not in a feudal system today. We're in a democracy in America. We elect our president and our congressmen and our senators. So we're not in a world of kings and queens and lords and your lordship. We don't have vassals and counts and serfs and and pages. So that word lord is not a word that we use frequently in our language. So what does it mean when I say I'm going to confess Jesus is my lord? What's the modern component to it? Well, the modern comparison of Jesus being my Lord is maybe that he's my manager, my CEO, the the chairman of the board. He's my boss, my supervisor. He's calling the shots. He's sitting in the driver's seat. He's the pilot to my plane. He's directing me. When you say Jesus is Lord, the best description maybe is to put up a sign that says, under new management. Somebody else is calling the shots. Before I opened my life to Christ, I was managing my own life and I wasn't doing a very good job of it. So instead, I think I'm going to go with God because he made me, because he created me, because he knows what's best for me even more than I do. So I'm going to let him manage my life instead. Under new management. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord of my life. Just saying I believe in Jesus isn't enough. James tells us that even the demons believe that God is one. They're definitely not going to be in heaven. 90 to 95% of Americans say, I believe Jesus is who he said he was, but that's not enough. What does it really mean to believe? That word in the Greek in the original translation is pistivo. It means to trust, to cling to, to rely on. It means to have a relationship with. That's what God wants, a relationship with you and I. For God so loved the world, that's the greatest love. That he gave his only, his one and only son, that's the greatest sacrifice. No one else is going to to beat that, to give that kind of sacrifice for you. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's the greatest offer 
Worship team, you can make your way back up. But have eternal life. That's the greatest gift. We get a lot of gifts at Christmas that don't last six months, much less 60 years. Some of your gifts, most of your gifts, you may not even remember what you got last year. This is a gift that will last forever. Eternal life. What does that mean? Does that mean going to heaven? Oh, yeah, that's certainly part of it. But eternal life is far more than just duration. It also means domination because it will dominate every area of your life. It's quality of life. In fact, there are three parts to eternal life. It begins the moment you open your heart to Christ. It's your past. It's your present. It's your future. Three-dimensional. Listen closely. When you invite Christ into your life, accept his salvation, three things happen. You get your past forgiven. You get a purpose for living. And you get a home in heaven. It takes care of your past, your present, and your future. Past forgiven. Everything that you've ever done wrong, wiped out. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for those actions, but they are forgiven. Purpose for living while you're here on earth. Home in heaven for eternity. Where can you get a deal like that? Certainly not from the government. Not on the home shopping network. Only God can make that kind of offer to you. I wonder how many of you are living three-dimensional lives right now. Has your past been forgiven? Are you still carrying around guilt and regrets and resentment and grudges? Don't carry those into the new year. Leave them here. Let them go. Give them to God. Are you living life with a purpose or are you just drifting around? You're either living by purpose or you're living a life of pressure. How about heaven? Are you certain for your home in heaven? Or are you afraid of death? I'm not afraid to die. I'm not looking to, but I'm not afraid to die. I haven't been for a long time. In fact, it would be a promotion. That's what Paul says. Kill me. Go ahead. That's a promotion. I get to go home, all the way home. God wants to give you these three things. His love is extravagant. His friendship is intimate. He invites you this morning to move to the rhythm of his grace, the fragrance of his love. It's intoxicating. Spread wide in the arms of Christ is a love that covers sin. No greater love will you ever know. Are you ready for that this morning? Follow me closely on this. Everybody in the world is created by God. Everyone in the world is loved by God, but not everybody in the world is in God's family because that's a choice. God's not going to force you to love him. You must choose to love his son to get into his family. This morning, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from death, then you will be saved. You enter into a whole new family, into a love that is secure, into a love that deals with your past, gives you a present and a future. Take that gift. You can't refuse to take such a good offer. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you. We're going to end with a song.